I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. Welcome back to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. Simone and I have a fantastic interview for you this week. Our guest is the Lagos-based fashion designer Adebayo Okelawal, founder of Orange Culture, a label that's long been combining fashion with activism and is proudly produced in Nigeria. His links to the Ethical Fashion Initiative go way back, and you'll hear him and Simone talk all about that, as well as how to make it, follow your dreams, and the power of fashion to change conversations, and even lives. Adibayo is an inspiration. He makes amazing clothes, and he uses his platform to stand up for issues he believes in, not least fighting toxic masculinity. And really beautifully, he also gives back by offering to mentor loads of young designers starting out. It's just a lovely conversation, this one. I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to tell us what you think. You can find us on Instagram at Ethical Fashion. And please do share the episode with your friends. And yeah, without further ado, let's get to it. Here's Adebayo. Adebayo Okelawal, founder and designer of Orange Culture. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Simone. It's been a long time and I'm excited to see you and to see Claire. (laughs) Well, I'm very, very happy to see you because actually this is Mark 2 because we were going to speak and then you were whipped off to the hospital. Yes, I was whipped off (laughs) literally the day before. um, I had my appendix ruptured, so I literally was rushed to the ER and I had to have emergency surgery literally the night before. So it was a crazy, crazy experience, but I'm so glad to be back and healthy. We're very glad to hear that. Super glad you're back in full health. Thank <laughs> you. I want to begin by asking you how you two met, because I think, Bio, that you were part of Constellation Africa in 2015, which was something the Ethical Fashion Initiative was involved in during Pitti in Italy. Could you tell us the story of how you met? Oh, so I had the privilege and the honor of being one of the first batch of designers to work sort of with the EFI from Africa under the Constellation Africa platform or show that was organized by Ethical Fashion Initiative. And I, and I remember um, being flown to Florence. I think it was my first time actually, or second time in Florence. And we were given the opportunity to show our collections um, on the runway in Italy, which I had never done before. And it was so exciting because not only was I doing it, but I was doing it along some of my brothers from South Africa, you know, from all other parts of Africa. And so I had such a great time. But I then met Simone there, who literally from the moment I met him was just a ball of sunshine. <laughs> he literally made us laugh so much from the moment we met him, just so warm and so kind. And I'm forever thankful because it was definitely like a lift off for me, um, especially within the Italian market, and introduced me to all sorts of press and introduced me to people that I hadn't met before and introduced the brand to a new audience. So I'm so super thankful. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to meet Simone and yeah, and see him glowing as I see him now, even after how many <laughs> It's me, the one who is grateful to you, Bayo. It was a great meeting and I have very fond memories and you're absolutely right. You were among the first ones 
you were part of the very first group officially scouted uh, uh, across sub-Saharan Africa by the Ethical Fashion Initiative. In those days, we used to work also with Simonetta Gianfelici, a very well-known talent scout. You remember her and with Pitti, of course. And we saw immediately in those very first days the potential of your brand. We saw immediately that this first group would have made history in African fashion. And this is what happened. Today, you are one of the biggest names in Nigerian fashion. You are championed by the likes of Vogue magazine. You show at International Fashion Weeks. Do you want to start by telling our listeners something about your brand? My brand, Orange Culture, which I launched in 2010-11, is a brand that I've always wanted to build. I mean, I've always loved fashion. For anyone who has read about me or has listened to me ever speak, Orange Culture and just fashion in general have always been something that I've been passionate about. But for me, deciding to create a brand and the kind of brand I wanted to create was an intentional decision because I didn't just want to create another brand that just made clothing. I wanted to create a brand that had some level of emotionality behind it and some level of social, you know, impact. And, and I love the idea of creating a brand that starts conversations. I really wanted a brand that spoke for things I believe in and against things that I didn't believe in. And one of the issues that I faced growing up was really hyper and toxic masculinity, which was a huge thing I really wanted to discuss with the brand. Mm. And with the brand's aesthetic, we generally are going against any form of hyper masculinity or any stereotype that has to do with masculinity. And also any stereotypes that have to do with African expression, because we found as a brand that Africanism was so boxed and so caged and so different levels of expressions that were expected of us were still within very limited spaces. And so as a brand, we wanted to ensure that we were creating our own narrative and not following the narratives that other people had imposed on us. And also ensure that not only were we speaking on things that had to do with masculinity, which is really our major conversation starter, but also dealing with other layers of issues. Like we've had a collection that spoke against abuse. We have a collection that spoke against, you know, um, oppression. You know, we've had collections that basically take through layers of conversations. But the point being that every collection, everything that the brand does is intentional and is creating some level of social conversation. Who is your audience? Who are you speaking to and selling to? So I would always say that Orange Culture sells to people who are interested in more than just clothing. For an Orange Culture consumer, it's not about buying a shirt or pants. Yes, we have the people who will buy a shirt and pants, but our main core people who love the brand and engage the brand in a deeper way are the people who love the idea of a brand that does more, a brand that's interested in the people, interested in the communities, interested in in the people who are wearing the brands, interested in the psychology of the persons, interested in dealing with, you know, people's issues and talking about people's issues. Not a brand that's just lying comfortably or, but actually doing things that concern the development of its people. And I think that that's why our consumers are always so emotionally engaged when they are listening to the things that we say and listening to our conversations and connecting with the brand. We get emails all the time. They're like, oh, you know, this collection really inspired me. I felt a certain type of way. I've always felt ostracized and your brand makes me feel like I belong somewhere. I've always felt like, you know, nobody understood me and now I feel like I'm understood by this brand. And so our consumer is definitely looking for more. And how about production? I like very much a recent post of yours on Instagram where you told your customers, I quote it, 
This is what you should know about what you order. Pieces are produced in Lagos. We work hard to source as much as we can from our home country. What about that? So we, we generally like to work because one of the things that I wanted to do intentionally was work within the community and work to bring back into the community. Because I found that when I was starting a brand, a lot of people were advising, oh, you know, why don't you go to China? Why don't you go to another country to produce? You know, um, everyone says production is in grades. Everyone says production is... And so there was always this, oh, forget about where you're coming from. Just go and do it somewhere else so it's easier for you. And so buyers can listen to you faster and stuff. But for me, that was such a hurtful thing to hear because I live here. I've grown up here. You know, I don't want to be in a place where everything I do is going back to somebody else. You know what I mean? Like, what about the people here? What about the hands here? How do we grow if no one is giving the people the chance to learn, you know? And so for me, creating a brand that was developing itself here and producing here as much as possible, sourcing fabrics here as much as possible, and bringing your money back into the community to develop the community, bringing your knowledge back into the community to develop the community, all of those things were very, very important to me. I didn't mind that I was going to lose bias because we did lose bias, you know. Did you? Yes, we did. We did. We did. We had bias who told us, oh, you know, if you're going to produce somewhere else, then we'll take you on. And I was like, um, so, you know, we can't really do that for now. You know, we're not really that interested. We've had bias who say, oh, send us your factory list. And we're sending them, oh, we produce in Nigeria. And they're like, oh, um, you know, we'll get back to you. And they just don't, you know. But... Is that some sort of misconception of what quality might mean? What, or is that about price? Why do you think that happened? I think it's layers, you know. I think, you know, for us as a continent, our fashion industry is quite young. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, because of social media, we've grown visually quite fast. But in terms of infrastructure, we've not grown as quickly. And that's because, mm. you know unlike most fashion industries, we don't have the support of the government. We don't have the support of, you know, governing bodies that would be supporting industries and infrastructure development in other countries. We're having to develop our industry by ourselves and by private enterprises like so style house files, you know, latest fashion, those kind of things are being done by private individuals and designers who are saying, mm. you know, why don't I work on this? Why don't I help this part of the industry? Why don't I push for this? Why don't I push for that? And so a lot of the time, people have known us from the past to not necessarily have the equipment to do things in large numbers. So to scale up in like doing the thousands and the 2000 and the 3000. But now we're getting to a place where the environment is now to be concerned. And so now people are like, oh, wait, so slow manufacturing processes <laughs> might be the better way to go. And so now people are coming back and saying, oh, so the Nigerian brand, yeah, you're the one who produced in Nigeria. Yeah, you couldn't do large numbers within a certain time. Maybe we can work with you now to do smaller numbers. And so that was also an issue. And then the issue of quality, which was an issue years ago. But the thing is, everyone is learning, you know, we're all understanding because the thing is, if you don't give feedback, how do people know what the issue is? And so, for example, for us, I've always had to like ask questions. Like, okay, so what do we need to do? Like, what do we need to do to get to the place where other people are, you know, in terms of production, but still keep our production here. And so our production is getting better and better. And so we're getting more buyers internationally and whatnot. So I think those were some of the issues. Sorry, I bet you've got a lot of things to say about that. When you spoke about local production, I, we are also producers at the EFI in many different countries all over 
sub-Saharan Africa. And what we notice about production is that credit and the work with credit institutions is quite difficult because fashion is rather a young industry in Africa and uh, all over the continent. And maybe people in banks and in credit institutions don't have the skills, don't have the knowledge to evaluate the reliability of a fashion brand and to finance this brand. So you have to operate in a sort of cash economy or to have investors up front, angel investors. This may be difficult also uh, in terms of production, which requires quite an amount of working capital and to finance this kind of working capital. Is that so? You're absolutely right, Simone. I think, you know, the fashion industry, especially for many years, and I always say this, like, there's not that many generations of designers in Nigeria because we've only had maybe, you know, from the Shade farms to the Diola Segal generation and then to our generation. So there haven't been that many generations on the fashion industry. And so it hasn't been the most viable financial investment for somebody who's looking for a company or an industry to invest in because they haven't really seen any proof in terms of the numbers in comparison, for example, to agriculture or oil or, you know, other aspects of the industries that maybe have been profitable in quotes. And so it's almost like it's a fake situation of like, okay, you see the growth. Now you have to just believe that it will grow more. And I feel like, you know, years ago, maybe, but now I feel like designers have proven and the industry has proven that even without credits, we've grown exponentially, not just in Nigeria, but within the continent. And I feel like, you know, credit needs to be given to us now because we've shown that we can do all of this without loans. We can do all of this on our own with the little that we have. Imagine what we can do with the credit that will be given to the industry, with the right people. Because look at how much we've grown. Without the support, Nigerian, South African, Kenyan, designers in Africa are selling all over the world. You can think of, I can tell you, over 15 to 20 designers that are selling in stores abroad, you know what I mean, and are producing in places here, you know. So we've shown that we can manage the little that we have with what we have, and we can do great things with what we have. So I think that, you know, even though the numbers may not exist to prove, now we've shown you what we can do and and the faith needs to be given to us. The same way faith was given to agriculture and music and art, the fashion industry also deserves to be given that credit. No matter how small it starts, but they do need to try. We can't just believe that, oh, it's not going to work because we haven't done it before. No, they have to give us the faith. Exactly. You are absolutely right. It's also evolved enormously over the years, hasn't it? There's a whole generation of African designers who've been successful, notwithstanding all those systemic shortcomings around them. So they have proven that this is a viable industry and a good investment also. This is why I, I see a lot of new initiatives around investment funds, impact investment funds, also targeting the fashion industry. I hope they really do their job and provide the kind of capital that this industry needs to grow. And in your case, you've been extremely successful. I mean, you've been the first Nigerian brand to showcase at the London Fashion Week men's. You've been a finalist of the LVMH Prize back in 2014, six years ago, seven years ago. And you were a finalist also for the International Woolmark Prize in 2018. So really, we have seen these global perceptions of Nigerian fashion to change so much. We have seen them changing so much. But also, I think there's a global change in the perception of African fashion in general. What's your take on that? 
Oh, wow. That's, those are loaded questions, Simone. <laughs> yes. Um, so first off, I think definitely there has been an evolution within the industry, not just in terms of perception, but even as designers um, and how we also deal with being African designers and holding the power and the platforms that we do. I think there's a certain level of confidence that has come from African designers as well and a fearlessness to intrude industries globally. You know, and I think that has come because a lot of designers, or not a lot, but there have been certain designers who have been able to break certain barriers and have also allowed other designers to believe then that if those designers can do so, then maybe I also have the opportunities as well. And that's why, you know, we're thankful to international platforms who have given like EFI, you know, like the LVMHs and the Woolmarks who have said, okay, you know what? Let's look into African designers, you know, and see if we can also bring them into these spaces as well, because maybe they also deserve a voice. And so that has created a level of international recognition for African designers to let people know that, okay, these designers are worth looking at, you know. They might not have the support that we do, but look at them. They're talented. They're doing great things, even with the little that they have. And that's also helped amplify our voices. Not necessarily do the work, but it's helped amplify what we're doing, you know. But I think that the perception because of that for designers has also changed a lot. Before, where if they thought of African designers, maybe they would think of, you know, things like, oh, Ankara, things like bad production. Those things are changing because African designers are taking the narrative and switching it up. We're no longer afraid to state our voice and say, okay, this is our expression. These are the fabrics we want to work with. We want to be minimalist. We want to be maximalist. We want to use our own indigenous fabrics. We don't want to use our own indigenous fabrics. African designers are fearlessly choosing their own voices and not allowing anyone man- manipulate them into sounding or looking a certain way to fit into anyone's box. I love it. And I think also because African designers are penetrating more markets, are putting themselves out there, funding themselves to show at fashion weeks far and wide, funding themselves to do showrooms, funding themselves to you know be in different spaces. That's also showing that, okay, these guys are serious about the business. It's not a pet project for them. These guys are making serious business decisions. It's real business. And that's making people take us more seriously as well. So I think that the evolution has definitely happened. Designers I admire in the African space are endless because I love my African designers. I wear other African designers like a crazy person. I love Tongoro. I love Makio. I love Kenneth Ize. I love Studio 189. I love so many. I can't even, like, my brain is extra. I love Richie Nisi. I love <laughs> Kebe. I love, you know, Lucanio, Woman. Who Lucania woman have are also working with EFI at the moment and both yes. so good and so talented. I love designers, jewelry designers, Adele Dijak, shoe designers. I love King David. When I think of designers in Africa, I'm so astounded and so emotional just seeing the growth. It's so exponential and so diverse, you know. And we have so many strong brands in Diso Kumalo. We have so many great brands in Africa and the continent who are killing it day and night, you know. And so, yeah, I can think of too many. <laughs> That's great. It was so lovely and such a delight to listen to you and hear how excited you got sharing all of your peers' great work. But I want to bring you back to this idea of busting down tired old tropes and stereotypes about what 
either African design is or what Nigerian design is or what masculine design is. You started by just touching on not just the facts of your purpose and the kind of community you want to build, but also this concept of toxic masculinity. Can we go back there? And maybe you might be able to tell us the story of the orange boy and also tell us how you really seek to break down this this idea of toxic masculinity in Nigeria. So when I was younger, I experienced, so I went to an all-boys school and I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. And a lot of times, you know, I didn't necessarily sound the most masculine in the world. I'm sure you can tell that. <laughs> but I didn't necessarily fit into that narrative of what masculinity was taught to us of, you know, deep voice, hyper hard, doesn't show emotion, doesn't cry, all that stuff, you know. And so I grew up being told, oh, you know, you need to be a bit tougher, a bit harder, a bit this. You can't cry. You can't express some level of emotionality. You can't do that. Just because I was given a gender that I didn't choose. You know what I mean? <laughs> it wasn't a choice that I made. You know, I was born this way. You know what I mean? At the end of the day. So, but I just felt like, oh, why are all these stereotypes so imposed on us? Like, why am I made to feel like, oh, I can't you know, be emotional. I have a different expression of my man masculinity in quotes. And so when I started growing up and I would hear so many other people who felt out of place or who were getting bullied, I got bullied a lot because of this, who were getting bullied, who were being ostracized and whatnot, just because they expressed themselves differently or thought differently as men. It hurt, you know, to hear that. It hurt to feel that. It hurt to also be treated differently because of that. And so for me, I'm always someone who would speak for what I believe in. I never want to hold my tongue. And so when I started the brand, I, well, before I started the brand, I wrote an article called Orange Boy at a writing class, which was basically about growing up and being bullied for who I was and how I sounded and how I didn't fit into this box of, you know, what a man was supposed to be. And the article basically just ended with saying people just need to be free to be who they want to be and be liberated. And people need to accept that there are different expressions of manliness or of men or whatever it is that not every man needs to be a certain way. Not every woman needs to be a certain way. Diversity is what is beautiful. You know, everyone should be allowed to express themselves. And the article, my teacher then published it in a magazine and they started writing to me as orange brand boys and girls writing me about how they were being bullied. And I was the teenager. So imagine people sending me, oh, you know, I'm doing this, I'm being bullied and blah, blah, blah. And so that made it more obvious to me that this was a conversation that needed to happen. Obviously, I got a lot of hate mail. It wasn't all good. Well, how old were you? I think when I wrote the article, I was probably like 19 or 18. But, you know, I got some hate mail at that age. You know, people were saying, because I remember then it was like High Five or something. It wasn't like Instagram that was famous. It was like, <laughs> it was one of those apps or one of those websites. And people would send me things like, oh, you're going to die, you know, for saying this. Like, man, why would you want, why would you want to feminize a man? And all sorts of trash. And then obviously when I launched the brand, I really wanted my brand to speak on those things because I, for fashion even, I didn't find clothes that expressed the kind of guy I wanted to be. Everything was, you know, a suit or it was like a polo and, you know, it was all the same, which is beautiful in itself, but wasn't me. And I, I realized that, oh, if I don't find clothing that I want, then there's probably other people who aren't finding the clothing that they want as well. I want something that's a bit more fluid and it's a bit more expressive and colorful. And so I launched the brand knowing that, okay, this is my decision. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make clothes that I want to wear. I'm going to make clothes that start a conversation around how men express themselves and even how women express themselves. 
And, you know, create clothing that was emotional and expressive and delicate and showed another strain of men in quotes. <laughs> and so when I launched the brand, my choices of fabrics, my choices of colors were highly intentional. I remember my first collection had colors everywhere. Men were like in colorful shirts and, you know, prints. And, and people were like, whoa, like, who is this guy who is trying to do this? Like, why are men wearing these colors? Are you joking? What are you trying to do? And I remember I made a mirth, which was like a man purse, which was huge. And people were like, what do you mean by this? Like, are you joking? Like, are you crazy? And I remember one of the features I got, I think this was even my second collection for Bella Ninja. And it was like hundreds of comments and people were saying terrible things. And I read the comments and I cried. Oh my gosh, I wept. <laughs> it strikes me that you have to be very brave to do this because this is a big, dangerous thing to do, actually, to speak out. And you were rocking the boat. You were using your artistry to have difficult conversations. You were a real activist. An Thank activist. You so this is activism. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. And so, yeah, it was something. I can't lie. Like, I remember after that, I had to sit down and ask myself, okay, can you do this? Like, do you want to go through this? Like, are you sure you can handle this? And I remember just saying to myself, you know what? People are going to say whatever they want to say. And so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. <laughs> and I'm not going to read any more comments. And that was like the start of like the push for the brand. I remember in 2000 and I think 12 or 13, I had one of my first showings in Vegas, I think it was my second of second showing at a fashion week. And a buyer came, a big buyer. And I literally had men wearing organza shirts and like chiffon, like caftans. And it was like me, like literally pushing the boat because at that time, nobody, no designer in the world was doing that. And that's as honest as it gets. And so I did it. And then the buyer came, I was like, Oh, um, you know, I love what you're doing, but no man is going to wear this. And I was like, oh, okay. She was like, yeah, you know, like we love you. We love your aesthetic, but no man is going to wear like chiffon and stuff. We can wear the cotton stuff, but no man's going to wear organza. And, and I was like, okay. She was like, yeah, maybe just change it up a bit. Maybe just, I was like, okay, interesting, interesting. <laughs> but yeah, but look where we are now. Look where we are I now know, when like, you were, I mean, Gucci. Yeah. <laughs> you were ahead. You know, almost yes. every show, there's a transparent shirt on a man. And I'm like, yeah. I remember when I was told that this was never going to be worn by a man. And so it showed me that, you know, fashion literally can create social impacts. So fashion literally can create social change and can change the mindsets of people. And so it started off with a small conversation in my head. And now I look at the industry in Nigeria and I see so many designers who are expressing themselves. I see genderless designers. I see non-binary designers. I'm seeing people be themselves fearlessly. And I'm not trying to take ownership of anything, but it just makes me happy to see that, oh, you know, when I started, it was for something, you know, people were inspired to do their own thing and to also have a voice that is diverse and different and might create some level of controversy, but also not care about it. It's not an easy journey and it's not an easy fight. And it has caused me some, you know, issues and many problems as, you know, emotional states, but, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, the brand is where it is now and people are seeing that this competition is important and even changing onto deeper and more layered conversations as well that started mm -hmm. off from this. So, yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And you confirm us uh, in an idea that 
fashion, the fashion industry, fashion in general, is really a vehicle of activism. And uh, at, at its core, fashion is a very collaborative business. It's a serious business because you have to put together a lot of people in design, production, and different stages of production, in marketing, and everything. But usually you think about collaboration in fashion, in design, production, and so on, in the business. But if you push the boundaries of collaboration for what? To involve consumers and society. This is where you have the power to impact also on society and to be an activist. I'm really impressed by your story because you simply prove that this is true. And you prove that fashion can really give a serious contribution to the society and towards solving the issues of the world of today. To my personal curiosity, has the, the situation, the, the acceptance of diversity increased, improved in Lagos, in Nigeria today? And yeah, people say all sorts of things, but I would say this, that the consumer of today is a lot more different than the consumer of 10 years, five years ago. I have customers now who are architects and customers who are <laughs> engineers and customers who are, I even have pastors as customers now. So like, it just tells you the growth of the consumer <laughs> and great. the growth of, of continuality and consistent storytelling. Mm. Because when you have a conversation and consistently push for that conversation, people begin to listen to you. At first, they're afraid Second time, they're, they're a bit like, you know, alarmed. Third time, they're like, okay, why is he still saying this? Fourth time, they're like, okay, maybe I need to listen to him. And then fifth time, they're like, okay, maybe I need to understand him. And then it just keeps going. And so the consumers now and the, the listeners are, are becoming more aware, more diverse. The streets of men's, of, of menswear is more diverse now. The daily man is no longer afraid to wear color. The average man now in Nigeria has a colored suit somewhere. You know, it might not be a pink, it might not be a yellow, but it's probably leaning towards a dark green or like a dark red. Whereas before, it was like, oh my God, a red suit. Oh God, I'm dying. But now people are beginning to be more open-minded, you know, to different expressions of fashion and more um, open-minded to different expressions of masculinity. And I've seen that change. And even I think just the diversity of people allowing and celebrating diversity in entirety, not just even in terms of masculinity, but even in terms of race, in terms of body positivity, in terms of where people are from, in terms of, you know, types of design, types of labels, in terms of, you know, I feel like the industry is becoming more aware that there's a need for diversity and diversity should be celebrated and not ostracized. Mm. I want us to finish up by talking about how you're working with the next generation and all the work that you're doing to inspire a kind of whole new generation of fashion creatives. But first, I just really want to know what you were like as a kid. Can we take you back? Where does You're basically building a movement through your label as well as creating beautiful clothes. But where does it come from in you? What were you like as a kid? Did you want to change the world? <laughs> um, my mom would probably say that I always wanted to change the world. You know, when I was much, much younger, before I realized that I was so different, I was such a chirpy little fun thing <laughs> who just loved colors and loved seeing like my mom and her sisters dress up. I would always be so excited when my mom would come out in like her traditional, because my mom is from Benin, which is an Edo state, and they wear like a lot of coral beads and stuff. And so I loved seeing like colors and, you know, just even like a traditional wear. And the fun thing is traditionally, 
Nigeria is such a colorful country. Even the men's traditional wear is so colorful, which is why it's so strange to me that we went through a phase of, oh, men should only wear this and that. I'm like, but literally our traditional wear is skirts and wrappers. Men literally wear skirts and wrappers and colorful prints and stuff. So yeah, so I grew up seeing all of that. But obviously as I grew older, I, I began to realize that there was things that made me so different because people would say, oh, you know, why do you sound like a woman? Or, you know, why are you drawing women's clothes? Why are you drawing clothes? Why are you doing this? And so I started to be question myself a bit more like, oh, why am I actually doing all this? And so obviously that for me really made me grow up um, from a thick skin a lot faster than most people which I feel like has really is what has helped me now because <laughs> now my skin is quite thick. You know, you can say whatever you want. I'm just like, okay, cool stuff. You know, I'm going to continue what I want to do. But I did grow up being you know, a bit shy and then being different, but wanting to really express myself. I grew up dreaming to be in fashion. Did you? Yes. Even when I was in school, like my primary school education, my mom, my teacher used to tell my mom that I used to draw on everything. Like I used to draw clothes on all my school books at the back of my school books. I had a, a box that we took from like a new TV and I put it in my bedroom and I would draw and cut out all the sketches and put them into this box and literally just keep them because it just excited me so much. So you had an archive when you were a kid. You were very serious about I did. it. I'm not even joking. Yeah. I literally had an archive and I, my first time I had a friend then her name was Tofumi and we used to literally get Argos. Argos had like a, a clothing magazine where they used to like sell clothes. And so we would, our mom would bring like this Argos magazine to Nigeria and we would like sketch out silhouettes of human bodies. And that's how I learned to draw. And so we'll draw up like the hand following like the human body, draw up the head. And so we would like sketch all day. And it used to make me so happy. Like I would feel so excited and so emotional. Like thinking about now, I'm even getting emotional. Just how happy it made me. I, like, I would feel like I was escaping, you know, all of these things. Like even when I was in school and I would be so sad, you know, maybe someone bullied me, I would just start drawing and I would feel happy, you know. And so for me, fashion just had to happen. So in the spirit of the EFI and of fostering the growth of more and more brands in the continent, if you could give your younger self any advice, what it would be? What, what would you do? What would you tell a younger designer to do, to grow, to set up their own business? What kind of investment, of, even of public investment, of our side, of institutions, would you see as important to foster the growth of new brands in the continent? You know, I made so many mistakes starting a business, you know, and that's one of the reasons I even started Orange Mentorship, which is an education platform that I started to help designers, young designers who are trying to get into the industry, sort of access, you know, industry practitioners and professionals. And so learning from them and listening to them, I made so many mistakes. And so one thing I would say is listen <laughs> as a designer, yeah. listen to what the industry needs. Listen to the mistakes of the people that have come before you. Do your research. Intern, if you can, find an internship, digital or physical, and learn as much as you can. Because believe me, it helps so, so much to learn from the mistakes of the people that were before you. We don't always have to make the mistakes ourselves. Sometimes we can just learn from somebody else and it takes off a huge burden from us. I also believe that as a designer, when you're starting off, you should invest in yourself because that shows that you believe in what you're doing and you believe in your creativity and you believe in your brand. 
invest in yourself. Start off small. You don't have to start off with 20 machines and working with the biggest factories. You can start with two machines. You can start with one machine. You can start with working with smaller factories. You can start with sewing it yourself or working with one tailor. But start small and don't rush to grow. Grow organically. That's one thing I would advise. Because a lot of the time, when people sort of are forced into growth, they're not ready for the response of what the industry will demand from them. Like orders, huge orders and whatnot. And then you have this huge plunge into the industry and they're asking, oh, I need this, I need that, I need that. And you're not even prepared for that. So it's nice for you to grow organically, figure things out, try to sell on your own, try to do your own e-com, try to use social media, see the mistakes you're making, learn from them, learn about things like line sheets, learn about things like your tech packs, get as much information as you can so that when the buyers come to you, you're prepared. When the stores come to you, you're prepared. When eventually the investors come to you, you're prepared because you have the foreknowledge and the experience to be able to respond to them. And that's one thing a lot of us don't have a lot of the time. One thing I would say about you know institutions, oh, it's a lot. Um, I would say... <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, because I was going to say, it sounds to me like you're saying there is plenty of capacity and possibility for people to be self-taught if they're willing to put the time in and take it slow. Yeah. I mean, especially for people in Nigeria, I remember when I was younger, I dreamt of going to fashion school. I dreamt so much of going to fashion school. But first of all, my parents were not going to spend the, the money they had to send me to fashion school because it was so expensive. And there was no fashion school in Nigeria at the time, no credible fashion school. So where was I going to get the education? <laughs> it wasn't a choice. So I'm speaking more to the designer that's like me who can't afford to go to an Instituto Marangoni or go to like a Parsons because maybe they just can't afford it and they have big dreams and they have the talent. So, you know, how else do you learn? You know, you learn from internships, you learn from online platforms that are free, you learn from the spaces that you can, you learn to sew from maybe a tailor that's willing to work with you back home. But I'm giving my humble opinion to those people who can't afford it. If you can afford it and you can get your education in good schools, that is amazing because, I mean, who doesn't want to have that knowledge, you know? But if you can't, those are the options that you can access to also grow yourself as a designer. You give us an idea. More internships for the designers in our factories, yeah. in our production places. That's a very good idea. And the education. You give me an idea on affordable education. We will work on it together. I would be so honored and so excited to be a part of that. I'm I'm as emotional as you can imagine right now um, because I know how many young boys and girls who have dreams and who just wish to be a part of the industry but just don't have the access. And I think of myself when I was younger and just I get so emotional sometimes because, you know, even when I was in the industry, there were so many times where people were like, you know, ostracized or treated me differently because I didn't have the education or because I didn't really know a lot. And I wanted to learn, but I didn't really know how to learn, you know. And so... I feel bad knowing that there are many people who also don't have, I don't want people to have that experience. I wish that wasn't the case, you know. So I'm crying out for the young boys and girls who don't. Let's finish on that note because I loved watching what you were doing on Instagram Live during COVID. You mentioned before that you launched something called Orange Mentorship, but you've basically been spending or donating your time to sit down with, with young 
designers and young fashion creatives to give them help and to talk them through some of the pathways that they might be able to follow to get ahead. I love that you're doing that. So, you know, I started Orange Mentorship. Funny enough, I started it before COVID, but I started them as only physical classes. I basically started Orange Mentorship as a passion project because, like I said, I didn't have access to information or to knowledge or to schools when I was younger. And so I'd meet so many young designers who would, you know, have these big dreams and be so talented, but had no access to refine the talent. And so I knew that, okay, I didn't, I couldn't start a school. (laughs) So how was I going to get people to get knowledge? And so I started Orange Mentorship, which basically creates a platform for industry experts, practitioners. They don't even have to be experts per se, but people who have worked in the industry who have interacted with the industry and who have foreknowledge to speak to young aspiring designers from all over the continent and people who they couldn't access because designers would talk to me and say, Oh my God, I want to meet this designer. I want to intern with this. I don't know how to get to them. I want to talk to, you know, a buyer, ask questions. I don't know how to get to them. I want to talk to a printmaker. Where do I find? And so people would always ask me so many questions. And because I make myself quite accessible to young designers. So I said, you know what, why don't I use this and create this platform while COVID is happening, because even though there were physical classes, now let's give them something to do while they're at home. And so we moved from physical classes to online digital um, sessions, which were like an hour. And we ended up doing, I think, 13 sessions during COVID. We had, you know, from designers to buyers to printmakers to um, stylists. We had consultants. So we basically had people from all over the continent even all over the country, we had Americans who were also listening. We had people from London who were also listening, who basically had the opportunity to hear from these people, their stories, their mistakes, and learn from them. And, you know, and also at the end of it, we launched Orange Prize, Make Believe Prize, which gives a designer the opportunity to enter retail, a young designer. And so basically the young designer got an opportunity to go through Folklore and enter Folklore, which is a store in America, who now partners with Farfetch. And so that designer gets to launch their first collection with a retailer and gets a year mentorship with me. So they get to ask me all sorts of questions. I get to take them through their production procedures and whatnot, and they get to sell their clothes online, which, you know, is such a great thing because a lot of us didn't really have access to retail, you know. And so Mm -hmm. I launched that and it's been so emotional because so many people have told me so many things you know, designers send me messages. They're like, you know, I've learned so much. I can't believe that I'm hearing from this person. I can't believe that I'm speaking, you know, to this person. And our next session is next week. We have with Amoyami Akirile, who is the founder of Lagos Fashion Week and Star House Oh, yeah. And people are so excited. Like, oh my God, I can't believe we get to ask Amoyami questions. We get to hear her speak. And it gives people a personable opportunity to speak to people who have worked. Because the truth is that lots of designers work so hard and have such great stories and have learned so much but don't really have the outlet to put it out there, to pass on that knowledge. And so having people get so excited to hear someone speak about their learnings and about their experiences so that they don't make those experiences again has been emotional. Because I don't want, I want a future of designers who are better than me, who do better than me from the beginning, who are learning more. That's why, you know, I always say on like most designers who are so threatened by other designers, I'm just so happy. I'm like, oh, there's my young designers coming up. I mean, they're like, yes, let's do it. Like, push. What do you need? Like, I don't have much, but I'm willing to do help you with my knowledge. I can't give you a million, <laughs> but I can give you an opportunity to talk to a designer or talk to 
a printmaker or give you a factory to speak to, you know. And so for me, it's been emotional, it's been an honor, and it's been great to see growth, you know, and to see people learning. Mm-hmm. Education is important to me. I don't know how to express it to anybody else. I think because I didn't have it, I'm more passionate about it. I think about it, and I'm like, if I could go to fashion school right now, if someone said, I give you an opportunity, get a year and go to fashion school, we're going to sponsor it, I will go, even as a designer now, <laughs> because there's so much I can learn, you know. So I'm just so thankful to be able to do that for someone and to be able to give that the opportunity. Yeah, so thank you so much for allowing me to speak on that. Um, I've tried not to get too emotional, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Thanks to you. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. And don't forget to share the episode with your friends and with colleagues and with anyone you think would benefit from it. We love it when you tell other people. I'm going to say that again. Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work.